0: Turn with me, please, to the book of Titus, chapter 1. This evening we're going to read the parallel passage concerning elders and uh, something that also applies from 1 Timothy, chapter 3, to deacons, but using Paul's words in Titus, chapter 1, just verses 5 and 6 this evening. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely that if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe and not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask again that you would open your word to us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit in us. We desire to learn your ways, your ordinances, and your statutes, to order our lives according to your will, knowing that by doing so, we will be most happy, knowing that living according to the design of our Maker will be to our greatest joy, and it will bring you the greatest honor. So, Father, we we do desire to be obedient to your Word, and yet... We understand that the sin which indwells us clouds our judgment, causes us to misunderstand and misapply what you have written. And so we ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit promised to guide us into the truth and keep us from error. Our Lord said that we would be sanctified in the truth and thy word is truth. And so we turn to your word and we again ask that by your spirit you would illuminate our minds and through our minds, that you would guide our will. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My discussions over the years um, with other members of Reformed Christianity, predominantly Presbyterian members of Reformed Christianity, one common statement has been made concerning Baptists, and that is that we must not love our children denying them as we do the covenant rite of baptism and the blessings of the New Covenant. And that is, um, sadly, a fairly common opinion of Presbyterians toward Baptists, that, that we don't love our children, that we deny them the full blessings of the covenant because we do not baptize them as infants. And it's a serious charge, if it were true, but there is an element of truth in it, and that is that Baptists do tend to view salvation in a very individualistic manner. We take the truth that every man, every woman, every child stands alone in his or her sin before a holy God and is in need of personal repentance and salvation. We take that truth a bit too far, to the point that perhaps in response to the Presbyterian's charge or the Presbyterian's practice of infant baptism, we as Baptists fail to see the centrality of the family in the covenant purpose of God. But the family is in fact the core of the covenant, not the individual. It is also the core of the church, Which is why in both Timothy and in Titus, Paul writes of the elder and of the deacon that he must be able to manage his household well. And in fact, he makes it a a disqualifier that if a man cannot manage his own household, what business does he have managing the household of God? So, So Paul makes the family the core of the church and neglect of the family or improper management of the family is detrimental, dangerous, and, and very destructive of the church. We've seen this in practice. We've seen what has happened to the church over the years when, uh, when marriage has been forbidden, for example. Paul will speak of that also in First Timothy. Forbidden to the clergy. Or when men in the ministry commit uh, adultery or when fathers who are in the ministry fail to raise up their children in a godly way, and we, we even have a, a sobriquet for that, we, PKs, you know, pastor's kids. It's not a compliment, is it? It's a derogatory term. And, and as believers, we should look at that with shame, you know, especially as ministers, you know, to think that a, a PK is, um, is not a, a compliment in our society or in our church, probably shows that at least within the Baptist theology, maybe the Presbyterian's charge isn't lacking in some truth. And I think that that's something that we should always do when, when charges are leveled against us with regard to our faith. We should do what, uh, what scripture calls extracting the precious from the vile. Even when Shimei cursed David, David said, you know, maybe the Lord has sent him. Maybe the Lord has a word for me, even through this, this spiteful, hateful man and what he is saying. We, we love our families. Baptists love their kids. We're not trying to deny them the rights of the blessings of the covenant. But is it not perhaps true that we have uh, failed to see the family emphasis that is in the covenant? Listen For example, to what God has to say, Genesis chapter 18, concerning Abraham, the man with whom he made this wonderful covenant, God said, for I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. It's not I have chosen Abraham because he's such a good dad. He's such a loving husband. He wasn't either, really. But in order that, to the purpose that, that he would command his children and his household after him, that they would obey and keep the way of the Lord. And this pattern continues. Moses writing in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the famous Shema, hear, O Lord, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Moses goes on in verses 6 and 7 and said, these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Now. That's the individualist. And that's how we often think of our salvation is it's, you know, it's, kind of, it's kind of between me and God. Well, yes, but listen further to what the Word says. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Well, that's pretty much the whole day. And that's the point. It's, it's whatever you're doing. The commandments of God are not only on your heart as an individual, they're on your tongue, they're in your mind. And, and what, is the, what is the setting of this? Well, it's your sons, your children, your family. And when do you do this? Well, you do it Sunday morning at Sunday school. No, you do it when you sit down, when you rise up, when you're walking in the way, when you lie down to bed, when you rise up in the morning, all the time. It's the focus of the covenant, and perhaps because of infant baptism, and and I do think that we should always consider our views, the views that we hold to be true, are almost always originated from a response to someone else's views. We're reacting to something that we disagree with, and what do we do when we react? Well, we tend to overreact. And so we're reacting against the doctrine of infant baptism, which we believe to be unbiblical, and we believe it to be really very damaging to the future salvation of the infant, giving them a false security, giving the parents a false security as to the the future state of their children. But in overreacting, we have failed to see what God does promise in his word concerning families. And how important the family is to God, to the covenant, and to the church. And see, that's what Paul's bringing back to us when he talks about these qualifications for elders and deacons. But in fact, we call them qualifications. And your, my Bible says qualifications of elders. In Titus chapter 1 before verse 5, as has that little heading, qualifications of elders. No, these are disqualifications, folks. These these are not qualifications because what he has to say about the elder and the deacon, he could say about anybody within the church. He's certainly not countenancing pugnaciousness or drunkenness among believers. He's basically saying, if an elder, as he says, if an elder cannot manage his own household, it's a disqualification. It's something that we ought to see as a bare minimum in all of our lives. We could read this list and say, By the grace of God, this is how I ought to walk, whether I'm an elder or a deacon or not. But as we look at men and women, and we consider their service in the church as elders, as deacons, as deaconesses, particularly the men to whom God has given the responsibility of being the head of the wife, the head of the family, does the man manage his household well? Paul goes on in his his writings to talk about a a unique situation in the family of a believer that a lot of people have have, uh, misunderstood. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he writes, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife who believes. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. He's teaching that if, if a man or a woman comes to the Lord and their, husband, their wife or husband does not, they are not thereby justified in divorcing or abandoning their unbelieving spouse. They're not allowed to do that. Paul says, because the, the faith of the one sanctifies the other, and he goes on to say, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Well... He goes on later on in the same passage to say that a man cannot guarantee the salvation of his wife. A wife cannot guarantee the salvation of her husband. In other words, he explains to us, I'm not talking about their salvation. Children are not saved just because their parents are saved. But neither in God's eyes are they in the same place as the children of unbelieving parents. That's really the point here. That children of believing parents are already blessed. They are sanctified. They are set apart. And it is, uh, maybe uh, um, an accommodation to our Presbyterian brethren, it is God's way to work within families. Even Peter in his first sermon says that this blessing is to you and, and to your children. And to those who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. But he says, and to you and to your children. He, his, his loving kindness, what? It extends to the children of the third and fourth generation. You know, it's, it's not just me standing alone before the Lord and then my children standing alone. We, we do stand as family units and those family units are vital to the church and to the covenant people. The children are no more saved through a believing parent than is the unbelieving spouse. We know that, we accept that, but clearly there is a divine blessing within a family when even one parent believes. How much more when both? So Baptists needn't, pardon, you know, give up the baby with the bath water, with the baptismal water. I just came up with that, so. <laughs> we, we don't have to throw away the truth of Scripture that, that God is, you know, he ordained marriage, he ordained the family, he ordained it for a purpose, and that is that we should obey as families, and that within the world, the society of mankind, that we ought to be families who obey the Lord, not just individual. Even our evangelism in Baptist circles tends to be so atomistic. So individualistic. Or we even reverse it with our vacation Bible studies and we try to get into the family through the children. That's not right. You know, the family is a unit. The husband, the wife, the children. And it is crucial for the health of the church that these families, especially the families of those who are in leadership, be according to the will of God. And so Paul lays out two characteristics First, that the, the man who is considered for a, the position of, of bishop or of deacon be a one-woman man. And that's literally what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, twice, and here in Titus chapter 1. Not the husband of one wife, but literally a one-woman man. Now that introduces some questions as to what it means, and also the question as to whether or not a divorced man may be an elder. Or a deacon. And then also, we see here the characteristic a little bit more defined in Titus than it is in 1 Timothy. But from 1 Timothy, he says that, that uh, an elder must be able to manage his household well. Titus says that he must have children who believe. Well, that raises the question uh, whether or not a man can be an elder or a deacon if he has unbelieving children? Can a man serve in leadership in the church if he has been divorced? Can a man serve in leadership of his children if all of his children are not believers? And and I want to try to establish that the danger of lists in the Bible is that we take them to be kind of veto points. We take the easy way out. Without letting Scripture interpret Scripture, we we find a very easy solution. Oh, you've been divorced. You're disqualified. That's it. You're done. Not recognizing that Scripture itself actually acknowledges valid reasons for divorce and says that the man or woman so divorced is no longer bound. We bind what the Lord has unbound. Also with regard to children who are unbelieving, I think we make a a, a terrible mistake when we read a criteria, a simple bullet point that Paul gives us in one place and fail to read the rest of scripture, fail to understand what it is that Paul's driving at, and rather use them as really nothing more than legalistic points that we can check off a list. But we're going to look at those tonight very briefly. A one-woman man. Again, that was literally how the the Greek is rendered, and so it, it, it... gives rise to various meanings. Uh, For example, he's not a polygamist. He doesn't have multiple wives. Now, we don't really think about that anymore because even the Mormon church doesn't allow polygamy anymore. It's not an issue in our society, but was an issue in first century, the Mediterranean world, not so much among the Jews, although it was present among Jews, but among the pagans, it was fairly common. And so Paul might be saying that you know, the, the man need have only one wife, not multiple wives. But it could also mean not divorced, that he's not been divorced and remarried. Some would take it so far as to say he's not even a widower, that he has one living wife. And therefore would also say that the man who is considered for an elder or deacon must be married. You See where you can go with this. You know, he's a one-woman man, which means he can have one and only one, but he must have one, okay, and not more than one. The math is very simple. He's got one wife. He's, okay, well, he passes that hurdle. Now we can consider the others. One at a time or one and only one? That's really the question that the, all of the commentators go to. Is it, is it just, you know, serial monogamy? He only has one wife at a time? Never two at a time? Or can he only have one, and, and regardless of circumstances, never have another? But is that really what Paul's doing here? Is he doing a wife head count? Is that the issue among all of these things? Or is, is it really rather that he's trying to establish a fundamental characteristic of an elder or a deacon, and that is that he is faithful? See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about leadership in the church, and he uses himself as an example, kind of a supreme example. And he says, moreover, it is required of a steward, what? That he be found faithful. The the issue here is faithfulness, not the number of wives a man has. That's really the circumstance that manifests whether or not you're dealing with a man Who is faithful. Now, a polygamous man is unfaithful by definition. If he has multiple wives, then his faithfulness is divided among the wives. So, I think it's fairly clear that polygamy is forbidden by this passage. A man cannot be faithful. To multiple wives. That, that, what that does is simply redefines the word faithful until it doesn't mean anything anymore. Was, was Solomon faithful to his 700 wives? What does, it, what does a concept like that mean? You know, I'm a, I'm, I, I hold three different citizenships and I'm a patriot. To which country? You know, you can't, you can't have divided loyalties, especially in marriage. And so polygamy is, is definitely out. But that's kind of the easy one. But it does raise the question, in light of the metaphor that Paul is using, how did the church ever develop the idea that a bishop is over multiple churches? Isn't that a form of ecclesiastical polygamy? How can he be faithful? What if there's a disagreement between two of his churches? Which one, you know, not that ever happened among multiple wives, I'm sure. You know, which one does he side with? You know, this idea of a, of a diocese bishop is really ecclesiastical polygamy. But, you know, in our modern world, and really in the world in which Paul lived, the issue comes down to whether or not an elder can have been divorced. And in conservative circles, that's just simply a disqualification. In my, my older brother's circumstance, the one for whom we we're praying, Lance, um, he is divorced and remarried. And because of that, um, he has not pastored a church in over 30 years. You know, And it's a great sadness to him, but it's a reality in, in the church that if a man is divorced, he is disqualified. On, on the basis of this passage and the interpretation of this passage, and yet, does the fact that a man is divorced mean... That he is or was an unfaithful man. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when he's talking about the sanctification of the unbelieving spouse, he says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister, so he reciprocates it, okay, if the unbelieving man leaves, the wife, the believing wife, is not bound. The man, the brother or sister, is not under bondage in such cases. In other words, if a man is a believer and his wife an unbeliever and she rejects both him and as well as his faith, that marriage is dissolved. That bondage, that, that binding, Paul says, is broken. Now, what is a man who is no longer in bondage? Well, what is the word we use? Isn't it free? Okay, Paul goes on in Romans to talk about how there are circumstances, abandonment, infidelity, and of course, death. Three biblical reasons under which a divorce is the untying of that knot and the freeing of the one who was bound in marriage. Well, what the church says is, yeah, yeah, you're free, but, you know, not really. Maybe we say you're, you're free to remarry, but you're not free to be an elder in the church. I don't think that's right. I, I think we're establishing laws that are, that are beyond what is written. Because we're taking a, a passage that, that has some ambiguity, and we're ignoring other passages that have great clarity there are circumstances in which a man or a woman who was married or were married and no longer because of divorce, they are, in fact, free. And so, if a man has been divorced, it seems to me that before the judgment can be passed, there needs to be an understanding of, of what was the basis of that divorce. And that, to me, seems to reiterate and reinforce the, the, the requirement that the men who are called to pastor the flock be from among the flock. I mean, frankly, if I were on a pastor search committee, and I received a resume from a pastoral candidate, and, and where it says, you know, marital status, divorced, remarried, I would probably just... Throw that one away because, in fact, I I did that in engineering. My human resources manager got very upset with me, but if a man was applying for a job and he was divorced, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know whether the man was, in fact, a faithful man whose wife was unfaithful or whether he was an unfaithful man who was probably still unfaithful. And to me, this, this reiterates the importance of, of us knowing the men, knowing one another, so that when we consider people for the office of elder or deacon or deaconess, we, we know their circumstance. And if, in fact, a man has been through a divorce, we know why. And we can say, well, it wasn't his fault. He was, in fact, faithful. He was faithful in circumstances far beyond what we have lived through. And by God's providence, his wife or her husband abandoned both their spouse and their Lord. And it's not a disqualification. But Paul's stipulation of one woman man is also not a command that every elder or deacon be married. And that's also been taken you know, kind of the, the exact opposite of, of the, the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine of celibacy, prohibition of marriage. There are many within conservative Christianity who say that you're not qualified to be a leader in the church if you are not married, which would have ironically disqualified Paul, who may have been married, because it was very unusual for a man to be a member of the Sanhedrin and not be married. It may have been, and some commentators theorize, that Paul's wife either died or did not become a Christian, and stigmatized Paul, excommunicated him, as would his synagogue, when he became a Christian. So he was not providentially able to do, as Peter did, take along a believing wife. But in any event, Paul, we, we know nothing of him being married, and yet he says in 1 Corinthians 7, again, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, is so crucial to the whole idea of of marriage and men and women in the faith. He says, yet I wish that all men were even as I am myself. In other words, not married. But he says, however, each man has his own gift from God. And so we can conclude that if, if a man is married, then it is to one wife only. If divorced, it is best that the cause is well known. It is best for the church that the cause of that divorce is well known. If unmarried, then chaste. Now, we might think that the safest position, and this is where the church often settles, is the, the safety of a position. The safest position is a man who is married to the same woman all the years of his adult life. That's the safest position. A man who's been divorced and remarried, well, then we have to dig into the circumstances of the divorce. A man who is not married, well, you know, he might, you know, be not able to control his bodily urges. So they're dangerous and we don't want those. We want married men and typically that's how church pastoral search committees view it. And and so the pastor is going to point out the fact that he's been married to the same woman since 1972 or whatever. He has three children and four grandchildren and that's what the church is looking for. But do we know the nature of that marriage? Do we know that that man has been a godly and loving husband? Do we know that he's been a good father? Do we know that he has managed his household well or that he just managed to stay married? You see, we don't know the heart of men. God knows the heart. He gives us the actions of men in order to give us the best manifestation of that heart that we can discern. But the importance here is once again that we must know the man. We must know the wife. We must know, perhaps most importantly, the children. Jesus said a very enigmatic statement. He said that Wisdom shall be vindicated by her children. And so Paul says that men who are considered for elders or deacons, and women, I would say, for deaconess, must have children who believe. Literally, children having faith. An evidence of a well-managed house is, in my opinion, infallibly the children. Husband and wives can fake it. And I, in in 30 years of being in the ministry, I've seen it. Wives who, who actually say verbally, I will not say anything that might hinder my husband from pursuing his ministry. Which is as much to admit that there is something that could be said, but I won't say it, because if I say it, he will be disqualified from his ministry. Husbands and wives can fake a happy marriage. Children have a nasty way of revealing everything. And really not by their words or even by their behavior, but most importantly, by their faith or lack thereof. Children are too young to recognize a vested interest in the sanctity of their parents' marriage. Whereas husbands and wives can be very conniving, realizing that within the church, a godly and happy marriage is kind of the prerequisite to to anything. And so, I think we all know that the Sunday smiles are not always reflective of the Monday woes. That not every marriage in the church is a godly and happy one, in spite of what we may see in the pews on Sunday. But we can look to the children, and I think we can see whether it is a well-managed household. And yet, even there, we go overboard. You know, we think that a well-managed household was uh, after the pattern of Georg von Trapp, where all the children line up at the whistle, you know, at the bosun's whistle, all the children line up ready to give their name in order. That is a well-managed household. No, it isn't. That is an oppressive tyranny. But then we go to the other side and say, you know, a loving father allows his children to be what they will be. So the fact that their children are hanging from those crossbars is not necessarily indicative that it's an ill-managed house. Yes, it is. (laughs) Children aren't monkeys. (laughs) You know, they, they are to behave. And so, you know, there are extremes and Parenting rules have have gone back and forth over the years between those extremes of of a rigid obedience and and an absolute chaotic anarchy. And all of them are, you know, this is the way we should raise our children. No, that that is not indicative of a well-managed household. And, And I really can't stand up here and say which, what is, except to say children having faith is the way Paul puts it. And so, without a doubt, the best evidence of a well-managed household is children who believe. And again, not just raising their hand or walking down the aisle or signing a card or being baptized, but children whose faith is manifested in their words, in their actions, as they grow up. That is the evidence of a well-managed household. But it does raise the question whether or not a man is qualified to be an elder if any of his children do not believe. And that again is a requirement that is placed upon leaders in the church, in some churches, that if an elder has any child who does not believe, he is therefore disqualified from being an elder or a pastor in the church. And I would say that is saying too much. I alluded to the verse in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about the husband and the wife. He says, or how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now biblically, there is no relationship among men closer Then a husband and a wife, the two shall become one. Nothing like that is said about parents and children. The children, in fact, are arrows in the quiver, meaning they're they're to be fired off, hopefully in a straight line and on target. But there's no relationship in that way between a parent and a child. So if the closest relationship between a man and a woman, two human beings, cannot guarantee the salvation of one or the other, how much less do parents guarantee the salvation of their children? It it is too much to say that a man is required to have believing children. What is required of the man is that he has raised his children in faithfulness. He has been faithful to the word he has been faithful in his testimony to his own faith in the midst of his children's unbelief. God alone knows whom he has chosen and he has not given to us as parents. For if he had, how many of our children would be unsaved? If it, you know, if it were up to us, if we did in fact have the authority and the ability to guarantee the salvation of our children, then all of our children would be saved. But we would be the source of their salvation and not God. And His sovereignty would yield to ours. The passage that is most frequently used and also abused within the church is Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he shall not depart from it. First of all, it does not mean he will go off and sow his wild oats, and then later when he's an old man return to the faith of his youth. That's not what it means. What it means is if we raise up the child in the way he should go, that when he reaches maturity, when he reaches the age of accountability, he will not veer from that path. But proverbs are not promises. They are proverbs. They are God's normal providence. They are passages that we can take hope and encouragement from. But the burden is upon us as fathers and mothers to raise up the child in the way he or she should go and that's where it gets tricky because we have two common extremes within modern evangelicalism first there's the worldliness with a christian veneer and i see this quite often i see both actually because of my role in the church and as well as in the miller um, excuse me the milton academy Worldliness with a Christian veneer, Christians who want their children to get into the best colleges, to have the best careers. Christians whose emphasis in their children's life is in their academic achievement or their athletic achievement so that they might get scholarships and go to this college and become a a professional. And there's a lot of that in the church. We are more concerned about their career than their faith and that causes a generational loss, a generational attrition that just about every church has experienced. We're not passing along the faith from one generation to the next, and that's a historical reality. But the one I see more in in our circles because we are more conservative is what I call evangelical uselessness. And that is that we keep our children so close to the vest So immersed in the church culture that they grow up with no skill sets whatsoever in the world around them. They are useless. And there is no witness in that. There is no guarantee. It's as if we're afraid. We're afraid that if we let our children have a career, get an education... And, and interact with the world, we might lose them. And you know what, that's kind of up to God. Our role is to immerse them in the reality, the truthfulness of our own faith. Because a child can spot hypocrisy miles away, especially within their parents. If we have lived in the way we ought to walk, then our children have seen that and we have prepared them as best we can. But as I said earlier, children are as arrows in the quiver of a man, and the quiver of a man was not meant to remain full. It was meant to be used in battle. The woman, the godly woman and the godly man will never be ashamed when he sits in the gate because his children will have brought him honor in the village, in the city, in the community, not within a cloister, Not within a safe haven where where no chance of being defiled is ever encountered. But rather out in the world, in the workplace, in the university. Where they are encountering the same things we encounter and they're doing so from faith. Evangelical uselessness, worldliness with a Christian veneer. Neither one of them are raising up our children in the way they should go. We do not know the providential future God has for our children, but we know that the way they should go is in obedience to the Lord their God. That that is the simple aspect of what we're supposed to do. But you know, all of this, as I said earlier, and to close with this, this is not for elders. This is not just for deacons. This is for the church. I don't think we can find an era in the church where families have broken down, where families has, have atomized and dispersed, and the church has not, as a result, suffered and declined. We, we long to see, as we sing, we long to see our churches filled. And as Baptists, we tend to think that that's all about evangelism. It's all about going out there and beating on the doors and street preaching and handing out tracts and bringing unsaved friends into church. But let's start where God starts. For I have chosen him in order that he would command his children and his household after him to obey the Lord our God. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would grant a special grace to our families and that we would be faithful, that we would pass along the wonder and the glory of the salvation that you have brought to us, not, only, not just in doctrine and, and not in, in, in rigidity, but in joy, the joy of our salvation, that our children might see that we indeed have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Jesus Christ. And we do pray for our children, Father. We, we long to see that each of them come to a saving knowledge of you through Jesus Christ. We know that it is not within our power. But, Father, we cling, hopefully, to the promise in the covenant that you do value our children. You do sanctify them. And we ask also that you would save them. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we search your word and that we would let Scripture interpret Scripture. Help us in the difficult situations where we have to make decisions that are not clear. Give us wisdom for your glory, for our good, and for the growth of your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please rise for the benediction from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. And that is an appropriate wish for parents, is it not? According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.